Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today, two conversations with the great feminist theorist and writer Judith Butler. One recorded nearly four years ago, just a week after Donald Trump was elected President of the United States. The other one recorded this week, in which we think about the possibility that his presidency is approaching its end. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas, where you can read elegant and expansive essays on every subject imaginable, from Amir Srinivasan on pronouns to James Meek on the WHO, from Pankaj Mishra on Anglo-America to Catherine Rundell on the Greenland Shark. Get 12 issues in print and online, that's half a year of the LRB, for just £12, with the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. We've been looking back over the Talking Politics archive and picking out one or two of the most memorable episodes, certainly the most memorable for us. And this is one, the original recording we made with Judith Butler just after Trump's victory. We asked Judith if she would be willing to talk now about some of the things that she raised back then and to our great pleasure, she said yes. So the first conversation is one that was recorded in Cambridge, face to face when that was still possible how I miss it. The second one was recorded with Judith a few days ago. She's in Berkeley, California. We'll come on to that one after the first one because we pick up on the themes of the original conversation. I think you'll be able to hear when we spoke in November 2016 just how raw some of the emotions still were and there is a little bit of shock as well and what's weird when I listen back to it is the feeling that the shock hasn't completely gone away. So first of all, Judith Butler, from nearly four years ago, reflecting immediately in the aftermath of the presidential election about the meaning of Donald Trump. Well, I had invited several people over for food and wine, and they started arriving early, about an hour and a half or two hours before we understood the direction the vote was going. And two of my friends, one of them is Mexican-American, one of them is Cuban-American, and they came in and they said, oh, the Latinas, they are all showing up for Hillary. We're going to win the day. You will be grateful to us. We've been treated so badly for so many years, and now we're saving you. Good jokes about the Latino vote, and in particular, the Latina vote. And then it started to change, and we were watching. There were about eight or ten of us, uh, an international group of people, actually. And and there was general disbelief, and a couple of people understood right away that Trump was going to win, and others held on to futile hopes to the bitter end. But what was interesting is that we all we all dispersed before the final announcement was made because we didn't want to hear it and we didn't want to see it so we all knew it was coming but we didn't we didn't want to see the fanfare we didn't want to see the ceremony we certainly i think didn't particularly want to see trump's face quite frankly and as it unfolded and people in britain had this experience on brexit night which is a sense of shock at the result but also a kind of feeling of surprise at a country being revealed to you that wasn't in some ways the country you thought you lived in. Yes. Did you have that on the night or yes, subsequently? I did because, of course, we had very specific demographic maps on several channels showing the various counties in Pennsylvania or the various counties in Ohio or the various counties in Michigan, and they were all quite alarming. And what we realized, and I think... Um, this was a very sobering realization, is that outside of the urban centers and the centers where most of the well-educated people live, there was vast anger at the present administration. There was vast anger at the economic conditions. Um, and there was some unchecked rage against migrants, against racial minorities, against Black Lives Matter, against women. 
So we had to deal with the fact that there was a, a popular vote out there, although she did win, Hillary did win the popular vote. There was enough of a popular vote out there that we were not aware of and that was obviously willing to vote for Trump. And and I think we felt somewhat indicted as intellectuals, as um, complacent urban intellectuals who thought, oh, no rational person would vote for him, no thinking person would vote for him. He can't, you know, he, it's absurd. It's it's impossible. So we were out of touch. I think what one of the insights we've had to accept is that many of us who speak to one another on the left liberal spectrum in the United States were out of touch with just how angry that electorate was and how much hatred was unleashed by Trump and what the economic situation was for so many people, such that they turned to Trump thinking that their their situation would change. So I think as shocked as we were, we also felt indicted uh, for our myopia and our uh, self-referentiality. We, we were not in touch with what was happening. And is your sense now that this has been revealed, and again, it's as a British citizen we feel like this is the second time. So we've had a few months to be reflecting on similar things in this country. Yes. That there's another country out there and that the gap between the two perspectives is huge. But is it your sense that it was unleashed by Trump or that it was always there and that it simply, it was sort of out of sight? Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I think there are rival interpretations of this, one of which is that a particular set of circumstances came together. The country was moving in a certain direction and if it's turned back the other way, it's it's because a, a few things came together to make that happen. For other people, that was always there. It was always waiting for its moment to, to reveal itself. Mm-hmm. I think that what was most interesting to me was Bernie Sanders' editorial in the New York Times, which opens with his claim that he was not surprised. And I think the reason he was not surprised is that He knew that a great deal of the anger in the broader American public was economic. The destruction of the manufacturing base, the loss of jobs, the increase in temporary labor, the loss of pensions, the the idea that the future horizon has been closed for many people and for and for the next generation. And what I realize, of course, is that what Bernie was trying to do was give a left interpretation of that economic situation and to persuade people that what they wanted or the way out of that economic situation of suffering was to develop a left analysis, a left solidarity, and to move towards a notion of social democracy, uh, if not democratic socialism. I think he, he couldn't really peddle the last so effectively to the American public, but maybe they're ready now. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's time. Uh, <laughs> in any case, I, I do think that, that the Sanders campaign worked with people's rage. He was angry, and it tapped into that anger. I don't believe the Clinton campaign tapped into that anger. They said, Trump is full of hate, we are full of love. And of course, I'm in favor of love. I prefer love over hate. You know, if I had to vote, I'll vote for love. Love um, might even just win in an election, you know, these, did, even these days. I did, might vote just for, win. I did vote for love, effectively. But what happened was that that rage was abandoned by the Democrats, and Trump was able to monopolize that rage and to turn it to his political advantage. So I, that is that is what I think. Now, now that economic rage, I think, or rage over a, a very painful and difficult economic condition, I think does sometimes take the form of anti-migrant discourse and practice, racist discourse and practice, sexist discourse and practice. So we have many different kinds of rage coming together in the Trump win. And I don't mean to say that the economic rage is at the base of all other rages, but I think it can't be disarticulated from any of them, quite frankly. And I do think that the Clinton campaign thought that Trump's hatefulness would indict him and disqualify him. But actually, a large number of people identified 
with hateful rage and felt that their hateful rage was licensed and even liberated by Trump. And so what we're seeing on the street, are we were seeing direct confrontations of white people with black people saying hideous things, white people with migrants or presumed migrants saying hideous things, open misogyny and homophobia, transphobia. So we're, we're seeing that unleashed in the public sphere now in, I think, some of the ways you also saw that in the immediate days after Brexit. There yeah, was, I think not on that scale. Not on it, that scale, but you had some some pretty hideous racist uh, sure. attacks on Polish yeah, people, sure. and, and, and a number of people felt free to express their racism in a way that they hadn't before. So, you know, hatred does get licensed and augmented by elections such as these. One of the most extraordinary things for me about this election is that you know, there are some political scientists who have said we shouldn't be surprised because Trump performed pretty much as you would expect the Republican candidate to perform after two-term Democratic presidency. It's American politics going through one of its regular cycles. And yet everyone else looking in thought, but he's totally unlike any other candidate we've ever seen. So the fact that the voting public almost treated him as though he were simply the Republican nominee. I mean, if, if Rubio had won under these conditions, we would be thinking that's kind of how democracy often goes. Mm-hmm. But it's that somehow the rage and, and the hatred has been squeezed into this familiar electoral box. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is the thing that's unprecedented about this. It's that people voted for him as though he were just another candidate. Yes, I, th- I agree with you. <laughs> I think there are plenty of reasons to be surprised. I know there are pundits on the right and the left who say, why is anyone surprised? Because Um, it's Trump. That's why they're surprised. Acting as if we're all naive or that we... we, we, Unworldly, unrealistic. And we had idealistic ideas of our nation or something. But the truth is, is that, look, the, the Tea Party was a rageful and racist part of the Republican Party, but it was not the Republican Party norm. You know, we had Republican Party candidates like John Kasich, who doesn't speak in this way, doesn't argue in this way. The Republican Party also had the traditions of Goldwater and Rockefeller, a libertarian and even thoughtful, fiscally conservative group. I disagreed with them, but they were they were recognizable adversaries. But what has happened, I think, is that a populist There has been a populist turn, not so much to the Republican Party, but to this candidacy. So we saw many strongholds, Ohio and Pennsylvania among them, turn to Trump when usually they would be turning to the Democrats or trying to find a a different way. Yeah, and that's the thing I say, if it had happened with Rubio, but Rubio wouldn't have been winning Pennsylvania, presumably. Yes, I think that's that's correct. That's correct. And as you said, he didn't win the popular vote. And again, in this country, we're used to two-party systems producing these unusual results where one of the two parties does well, but not outstandingly in an election and somehow ends up with everything. And so here we have a candidate who didn't win really any more votes than Mitt Romney, whose party lost seats in the Senate, lost seats in the House. Um, and he's wound up with everything. He's going to fill the place on the Supreme Court. Yes. It's a system that looks broken to me. It is broken. I think the Electoral College is a nonsensical institution. It's an anachronism. We don't know how to change it. And then people always seek to change it in the few weeks between the popular election and the Electoral College ratification of the vote. So right now there's I checked this morning, there were 4 million people who had signed a petition to abolish the Electoral College immediately. But we actually need a thoughtful and deliberate um, movement to abolish the Electoral College. It it actually does, I think, if you look back on it, I think it disenfranchises the massive numbers of people who live on the coasts, on yeah. either coast. And the people in your state who are voting after yes, the result was more or less That is, that is one, one problem. Voting for the loser in yeah. huge numbers. yes. So does it raise any questions for you about Trump's legitimacy? Because there is, I mean, I didn't even mention the fact that turnout was massively down too. So it's not as if that many people voted for him. Okay, many millions voted for him. But this is on a depressed turnout. He also managed either by accident or by 
by design to depress the turnout for Hillary Clinton. Yes. But we have someone who now has extraordinary power and ability to shape America's future yes. on not overwhelming popular support by any means, and almost certainly actually pretty significant popular scepticism. Yes. What is this thing called democracy that we yeah. that we live with and that we take for granted? Yes. Well, making sense of the non-voting eligible uh, public is, I think, paramount at this moment. Around 50% of the eligible public did not vote. And I think there was disgust with the campaign and disillusionment with both candidates and a kind of not giving a damn. I, I don't know how many of those people have remorse at this moment. I would imagine some of them do. I did see, at least on the left, there were purists who thought, well, I'll only vote for Bernie or I'll only vote for Jill Stein, the independent candidate, but I can't bring myself to vote for Hillary. But they diminished in time. So I don't think that was a huge factor. I think that there's a broader demoralization or depolitization that happened in relationship to the campaign and that has also been growing over time in the United States. So the fact is that of the eligible voting public, Trump has about 25% support. And we could simply say, what does it mean that we have a system in which this one person has such enormous power with only 25% support? But we also have a second problem, which is even, I think, more frightening, or at least equally frightening, which is that apparently, as a country, we have voted through democratic means for a candidate who may well destroy constitutional democracy as we know it. And that's a paradox that I think political theorists have to think about. How is it that democracy can bring about anti-democratic outcomes or produce candidates with explicitly anti-democratic agendas? So I do worry. I'm not my own personal view is I'm not sure if we were to test Mr. Trump on the Constitution, whether he would know what's in it or be able to cite very much in it outside of perhaps the gun laws, uh, the, the, the right to bear arms. But I think that we, we don't know whether he understands the Constitution as binding. He surely doesn't understand treaties with Europe as binding. He doesn't understand a number of legally binding policies as binding. I mean, what is the status of the law? Is it all a deal? Is it all is it all negotiable? Is is it all going to be treated like a market arena in which rights are swapped or obligations are jettisoned and we don't really know. So, I think there's a great deal of terror and not a lot that has been reassuring in the in the few days since his election. I know that many people are trying to figure out how best to enter the political field and one clear and immediate danger is is that of deportation. He's claiming that he will deport between two and three million. Mm. What what police resources, what army resources will he use to find and extradite those people? What happens to legal protections that are already in place? Will they be jettisoned? Will they be overridden through the invocation of security or emergency measures? Unfortunately, we did expand the presidential powers under Obama uh, so that due process can be suspended when there is a suspicion that someone or some group is a security threat. Now, we know how that logic works. That can expand indefinitely. And under this administration, this this coming one, uh, I think we have enormous fears. At this point, many people on the left are... I mean, some people are thinking, should there be a takeover of the Democratic Party by people who are further left? What What's the sequel to Bernie? <laughs> but there's, a, I think, a more primary question, which is what kind of social movement and political movement do we need? And then perhaps we can think about party politics in the context of an existing social and political movement. But the social and political movement has to be focused on democratic rights and enfranchisement and protections against deportation and limits to the police state and limits to surveillance and the protection of minorities of all kinds. So at this point, I, I don't know how to think about party politics or even the future of the Democratic Party. We all thought it was going to be the 
the Republican Party that was shredded to bits at the end of the election, but it's the Democratic Party that is. It needs to start from ground zero, but I think the party has to be based in a larger political movement, and the only thing that gives me hope at this moment is to see that there are informal modes of solidarity that are being established between different groups that haven't always understood their interests to be allied with one another. Do you think, given that the conventional understanding of what you do when you lose an election is you go into opposition, and so it's the idea of opposition which has a particular democratic meaning, yes. but the more radical alternative is resistance at some level. You you resist the regime. You don't necessarily, I mean, I'm not talking about armed resistance, but do you think resistance rather than opposition may be the appropriate response to a Trump presidency? Well, I do think resistance is part of what a radical democratic movement needs to engage in. I'm not sure I would say that resistance is all that needs to happen. My sense is that working within the parliamentary terms, as it were, as, as the Democrats now as an oppositional party, that will be important. But we've also seen that there's a refusal to negotiate on the part of the Republicans and the kinds of um, standoffs we've seen in the last months, especially the refusal to ratify the Supreme Court nominee, is just an indication of, of what's to come. The Republicans will doubtless run roughshod over the Democrats time and again. So the real question for us, those of us who, yes, I vote Democratic, but I am also part of a left that is certainly not defined by the Democratic Party, is how to expand a popular movement and how to expand forms of solidarity that go into some of these areas that have not been dealt with adequately by by the left, right? They have not been engaged adequately by the left. Like the manufacturing base, the farmers, uh, what's happening economically, what kind of appeal has to be made? What appeal did Bernie make and how can that be built upon so I think we need a much more popular movement that's not just being articulated by urban intellectuals who are relatively isolated from popular movements and popular concerns. I suppose another way of of saying that is that we're we're dealing with populism in the United States. Uh, we're also dealing with an, a possibly emergent fascism, quite frankly. We haven't thought about fascism as part of our own political history. We've had horrible segregationists, but you know George Wallace, I remember, is you know really horrible. We've had McCarthyites, uh, uh, but but, but those but, people but, didn't end up as president. No, and so and and I think there is a, a question of fascism. What, what what does it mean now? What does it mean on American soil? We need a a really clear critique of that. But we also have populism, and that's not completely aligned with party politics. And and that means that if there's going to be a mobilization of popular support for a left and a liberal political agenda, there has to be mobilization at the popular level. There has to be a way to move that popular energy and anxiety into a left framework. As you said, the economic conditions post-2008 produced on one side the Tea Party movement, but it also produced Occupy yes, it did. and Occupy Wall Street. So we've got a very unequal now consequence of that. So Occupy, I mean, Bernie was channeling some of that. Yes. But as a popular movement in its own right, as a democratic movement outside of party confines, what happened to that? Well, Where did it go and, and, and how can it be recaptured? Well, it's funny. I think it did emerge in Bernie's campaign for sure. But... I actually think Occupy had enormous success and continues to have success in identifying something that many people feel is very real about their economic lives, namely that the rich become richer and fewer and the poor become poorer and greater in number and that that seems to be the way in which economic inequality is accelerating in the United States and elsewhere. So that principle was was asserted and articulated by Occupy. It got taken up in public discourse. It even got taken up in presidential political discourse. And, and with the work of Thomas Piketty and others who were able to give some documentation to that thesis, I think that it did change the ways in which 
people think about economics. Now, if you're a right-wing populist, you could look at that and say, yeah, the system is rigged. And the problem is that all these migrants are coming in and taking your jobs. Yes, the, the system is rigged and I'm going to make sure that those jobs don't get exported to China, even though I myself export jobs to, to China. Uh, uh, in, in other words, isolationism, uh, racism, nationalism. So let's remember there was some 5%, almost 10% of Bernie voters who thought they would rather go to Trump than Hillary. And that doesn't seem like a large number, but it, there's something telling about the fact that that anger could have gone one way or another, right? And and in fact, it, it makes a difference. We were not able, the Democratic Party was not able to take that anger and and articulate it into a political platform in the, once Bernie was out of the picture. And I do think that was a tragic loss. And we do now have this ultimate ironic consequence that both in this country in the UK and now in the United States so we have a conservative prime minister Theresa May who explicitly said at her party conference speech that her party is now the party of the working class yes and Trump said in his victory speech that his victory was a victory for the working class and the language of class is back of working class is back which the Labour Party always was nervous about and it's been appropriated by the right yes it's extraordinary. Yes. And it's happened so quickly. Well, it's also interesting that those people who claim to be representing the working class are themselves responsible for policies that, in fact, have devastated the working class. So there's there's a contradiction in it that is a, almost a kind of perfect ideological contradiction, right? It, it's masked. It's like, no, no, I have not done this. I, I who pay no taxes, I who have benefited from unregulated expansion of markets um, uh, and no oversight. (laughs) Uh, uh, I am not part of the larger economic reality that has devastated the working class uh, or even devastated many people so that they're not even part of a working class. Their, their, their jobs are intermittent. They, they don't know if they're employed or unemployed at any given moment. I don't even know if we can call that the working class anymore. It's more like the precariat. Um, so I, I do think there's a, there's a masking of one's own complicity with the powers that have devastated people economically at the very moment in which those people, whether Theresa May or Donald Trump, who are not the same, but who are perhaps operating a similar rhetorical device, uh, claim to represent the working class. It's it's almost an ideological moment par excellence. So to finish, possible grounds for hope, maybe not, or maybe things could get worse. But as you said, there is a lot of rage not that many people voted for Trump. And actually, in this country, too, the Conservative Party, it has a parliamentary majority, but this is on a popular vote of about 36%. Yes. The rage isn't going away. And a lot of the people who voted for these new programmes are going to be very disappointed. So the people who voted for Brexit in this country, the, the chances are the benefits that they were hoping to get will not be tangible. Mm-hmm. And Trump will let a lot of his supporters down. I think we can assume that however much he turns out to be better adept at the office that he now occupies than we might expect, he's still going to let them down. Yes. Now, obviously, one risk of that is the rage gets worse and we get a kind of doubling down on this politics. Mm-hmm. But presumably there's also a possibility that quite quickly there is another pivot because our politics is moving so fast and there are new opportunities here. I mean, this is very early in this moment where we have these Republican or Conservative leaders claiming to represent a group of people whom they will almost certainly let down. Yes. So is there grounds for hope there that actually this could change quite quickly again? Because at the moment, these parties look like they've got things locked up. The British Labour Party is in disarray. The Democrats are in disarray. But if we've learned anything in the last 18 months, it's moving very fast. Yes. I remember speaking to some friends uh, in Greece when Syriza had to capitulate to the Troika. And I said, oh, you've lost. It's all terrible. They said, yes, it's true. We had to give in. We had to concede. But now there's a problem of implementation, right? Like, how? How are these deals going to be implemented? You know, and there are many sites of resistance, <laughs> like failure to pay. And we're the government. Re- renegotiating, <laughs> and we're going to resist. Renegotiating the terms of the deal to which they just agreed, not showing up, um, uneven implementation or, or refusal. 
these are kind of subversive moments in the field of implementation. Implementation is not automatic, right? And the same thing, an election puts somebody in power, but then he's got to formulate those policies and implement them. And what if there's widespread resistance and people don't implement them? What if they're not, they can't be implemented or there's enough disturbance that it's not as smooth as as one thinks. And in Trump's case, that could include the security state itself, which yes. after all is going to be yes. ambivalent about many of the things yes. in the international arena that he stands for. Yes, it's true. I don't know. I think there there might be non-implementation by those who are supposed to implement his policies. That would be nice to see. That would be a form of resistance or subversion. But I also, I think that we will find national and post-national forms of solidarity that will allow us to rethink the relationship of the left to the Democratic Party. And if anything, I think there will be a move to the left. I, I think that the Democrats will have to move to the left. They, they will have to deal with the working class. The New York Times will no longer be the sole <laughs> beacon. <laughs> uh, but in in any case, I, I, I do think that th- there is a possibility of a move to the left that could produce a counterforce in time. Um, I think we have to, to move beyond our, sh- our shock and dismay in order to start organizing. But I, I do think that it's possible. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I guess there's just one further point that I would add, which is that many of my feminist colleagues understand this election result to be the consequence of, of an enormous misogyny, either conscious or unconscious, and that Trump's attitudes towards women, his way of treating women, his sexual harassment, if if not sexual predation, actually brought out among white men in particular a very profound identification, a rage against women and a rage against feminism. It it seemed as if um, feminism was the was the superego that was keeping men from from hating women in the way that they do. And what Trump, of course, did was, well, in Jacqueline Rose's terms, license the unconscious so that those forms of once shameful misogyny became shamelessly expressed as they are being now. So some of the quite hideous remarks about Clinton and, and the ways in which she was treated as a woman do raise the question of whether the American public, or at least some group of them, would rather have a madman than than a woman, uh, uh, because at least a man symbolizes power in a way that allows them to uh, solidify and exalt their own power. I also think it's worth looking at how many white men either identified with Trump or were willing to vote for him, not just with an exhilarated sense of misogyny, but also an exhilarated sense of racism. And the one statistic that I saw that was most interesting to me was that there seemed to be a kind of tacit solidarity among white men across class lines, <laughs> suggesting that the class analysis can't quite capture the the racist and the misogynist dimension of this vote. So just to finish, to go back to where I started, really, so Trump licensed this. He licensed something that is ongoing. Ongoing. There was there was you know, the, the more optimistic liberal perspective, though these things are always there. That there, that there had been a move in another direction, and Trump sort of took the lid off and, and let it out. Yes. But was this you know, the vehemence of the reaction because things were moving against that point of view, or is it simply that this, as I said at the start, this is something that's always there waiting to to pounce? Do you mm-hmm. think? Well, you know, I don't want to be completely ahistorical about it. It takes different forms in different times. But it is true that, you know, Obama had in recent months acknowledged the rights of transgendered people to have bathrooms that would be appropriate for them. 
And he thought that that was a question of freedom and a right and a, even a question of equality. He put himself out there uh, on that issue. It's a social issue about which, as you can imagine, people are very divided. And so, yes, there was a revulsion against Obama for those kinds of positions, but also a revulsion against Obama for being uh, an elegant and well-educated black man who stood for the country. And I think there's deep anti-intellectualism in this vote. Uh, there's enormous rancor against the university and against the, the cultural elite on the left. You know, if we say, but this is irrational, but this is contradictory, this is, this, 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 nobody in their right mind can vote in this way. We sound like patronizing snobs. We do. And, and the effective response to us is, yes, it's contradictory, and yes, it's inconsistent, and I don't care, you know. I, I'm not. I'm not living by your standards, and I don't want to hear your rationality anymore. So uh, there's there's a lot of that. It also maybe for me and for those of us who work in education, we see that there's such massive inequalities in education in the United States. Uh, who can afford to move beyond high school into college or university? Increasingly fewer people. And, and those who do are burdened with debts. They're burdened with un very often unpayable debts. My, my students have unpayable debts. They will die without having paid that debt. Unless Trump leads to such inflation that the debts, the debts get inflated away. But, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, we tried to find some hopeful things to end on. but um, Yeah, sorry. No, no, it's okay. No, but I do think closing that gap, I mean, affordable education, I think it was the one moment where... Hillary and Bernie agreed in the crafting of the democratic platform. And that is going to be an increasingly important issue if we are to become a reasonably well-educated public who can make good decisions in the context of uh, a democracy. So uh, I know that probably makes me sound like an elitist, but I'm also in favor of accessibility to higher education and affordability. And uh, I think that was one of the most um, exciting moments of the democratic platform when some plans were made to, to really try to make higher education affordable. So that was nearly four years ago in Cambridge. A few days ago, I spoke to Judith. It was early in the morning Californian time. It was much later in the day. UK time. As you'll hear in this conversation, we talk a little bit about the possible meaning of Joe Biden's vice presidential choice. When we spoke then, and as I record this now, we don't know who it is, but I've just seen that it's apparently imminent. So maybe by the time you hear this, we will know who it is, in which case, please forgive us if we were speculating in the wrong way. I think, I hope that what we discussed probably still holds in some respects. We started, though, by talking about what for me was the big theme of the original conversation, that sense that American politics in the person of Donald Trump, but also in the result of the election that made him president, is dominated by feelings of rage. I think that rage is still very much with us. And there's a difference between the rage that Trump himself exemplifies in a rather shameless way, hurling insults and demeaning not only his opponents, but democracy itself, the conventions and institutions that belong to democracy. And then, of course, there is the kind of rage that you see in Black Lives Matter, which is certainly a rage against Trump, but more broadly against white supremacy and the false promises of democracy. So I think, yes, there is rage. I would say in these days, there's also enormous sorrow. I would add to that skepticism of some rather profound sorts, uh, skepticism about government, skepticism about science and vaccines, skepticism towards big pharma, which is oddly enough shared by the right and the left, maybe different sorts, but certainly evidenced in in both places along the political spectrum. I don't know if it's the only emotion. I think as the election nears, we see a rather stark oscillation between hope that this regime will come to an end, 
and also the pessimism that it won't and that the regime along with the illness will persist for an indefinite time. And I believe that brings with it a a sense of acute despair. So I guess I would revise my view to say, yes, rage is with us, but it belongs now to a spectrum of emotions and even a rather dramatic oscillation between emotions. I want to come on to the scepticism and the pessimism in a moment. When I listened back to our conversation four years ago, I think it's fair to say that we both assumed that in the politics of rage, it benefits Trump, particularly when fighting Hillary Clinton, his ability to channel, including, as you described back then, misogynist rage, racist rage, that by letting it off the leash, he would be the winner. And I don't know, maybe maybe this is too optimistic on my part, but there's a kind of impotence around him now in this kind of politics. He feels like a man who's trying to recapture some of that and trying to find his moment in the current crisis where rage works for him. But he seems to be on the losing side in the battle of anger at the moment. I mean, again, we don't know what's going to happen in November, but it's not at all obvious to me in 2020 relative to 2016 that the politics of rage necessarily means that Trump wins. I think that's right. I believe at the time I suggested that rage about a collapsing economic situation, impending economic precarity, rage on the part of white people about losing their presumptive privilege and place were all in some ways channeled by Trump. But if you look at something like Black Lives Matter, I would say that that's not quite the same as channeling a rage or displacing it. It's it's actually a cultivation of rage as a specific set of political demands. And it's been interesting to see that Black Lives Matter as a social movement certainly had its and has its moment as in-street demonstrations that seem not to end or seem to end and then suddenly to resurge. At the same time, it is manifesting itself in analyses of the healthcare system and who suffers disproportionately. And we find, of course, that communities of color do. And that's that's a statistic about mortality and morbidity here in the U.S. And I think also in the U.K., quite frankly. But I think that the rage is cultivated on the left in another way. It's not necessarily a displacement from other kinds of conditions. It's actually focused on the conditions of racism, the conditions of poverty, the conditions of mortality. And that includes a critique of the prison system and the police force that has successfully brought to the surface debates about defunding police and abolishing prisons. I mean, two proposals which were considered somewhat crazy and and unthinkable are now actually being debated, like, well, what would it mean and what would it look like? And certain towns are actually taking money out of their police budgets and putting it into education. So that's interesting to see. It seems to be working throughout society in a in another way. And it's not just a venting of rage, but a kind of rage against inequality and preventable death that is also articulating a different social agenda. I think you're right that Trump's efforts to stoke rage against Fauci, they work to a certain degree among his base, but I don't believe that they catch fire in the same way. Unfortunately, attacking Fauci or the other scientists who work for the National Health Organizations does deepen the skepticism towards science, and that's where I feel some, some great fear right now. Skepticism, not just about democracy, but about science as well. And I do find that frightening. Even if Biden wins this election, that skepticism will still be there. And it's still, it still has to be addressed because it will surge back, to use a viral metaphor. When we talked before, you mentioned Black Lives Matter. In 2016, we talked a bit about opposition to Trump and also resistance to Trump. And you highlighted how important movement politics would be. It happened, but it did take three and a half years. I mean, there were various attempts in the previous three and a half years to get something going. But really, 
it only caught fire in the last few months. Is that, do you think, because as we get closer to the end of Trump, the possibility of change is more real? Do you think it's a coincidence of the virus and, as you said, the kind of precariousness of life at the moment? It is striking that it has happened, but it's happened late. Well, it has happened as a public social movement late. It has happened in the media late. But one of the things one discovers is that the people who've been working on reparations have been working for a very long time. So we have these extraordinarily intelligent essays and analyses being published. We find that the people who've been working on prison abolition have been working on that for a very long time in the margins of the world. And now suddenly there's a public debate precisely on that topic. So the work has been going on. The organizing has been going on, especially in communities. But it is true that it coalesced at the moment in which the coronavirus was disproportionately affecting communities of color. So it's not just that, well, it is, of course, emphatically police violence against Black men, women, and children that became more and more the center of media attention. But that form of overt killing is happening at the same time as Black and brown communities are deprived of adequate health care and are suffering disproportionately from the virus and dying in higher numbers than white people from the virus. So there are kind of two ways of suffering, suffering death, we might say. One is being killed by the police in an overtly murderous act, and another is being left to die in prison, which are disproportionately populated by men of color, and also women's prisons, women of color, and then in communities that have been deprived of health care, mainly because of systemic racism or unaffordable health care here in the U.S. So, you know, that's a compounding of issues, but they all have to do with life and death and who is being given the means to live and who is not, whose life is taken out through a violent act and in other cases left to die and whose lives are protected against any such kind of violence for the most part. And that's, you know, that produces a racial understanding of violence and the inequalities on on which it draws and which it intensifies. So, you know, I think that it was the convergence of, of all of those things that brought about this upsurge. It's probably useful to say that Me Too was also a major movement, but it was oddly not so much a movement in the streets in the United States. It was I think in Latin America, a big public feminist movement against violence and discrimination that was in the streets. But I I think Me Too was a more individualized form of protest that does belong to the Trump era. And certainly it was reacting to his own uh, clear sexual crimes and his shameless way of denying them or pushing them away or paying women not to say anything but also the movement for climate justice and the ending of environmental destruction, I think, has also consolidated during these years. Yeah, in a way, in the UK, Extinction Rebellion earlier this year before the pandemic was the most visible sign of movement politics capturing something. I mean, again, it had been going on for a while, but capturing a moment, though because of the virus, that moment has passed for now. If we look ahead to November, so you talked about your fears. There is the, in a sense, the obvious fear. We don't know what's going to happen in November. And no one these days should ever think that an election is done until it's done. And even this one, maybe after it's done, may not be done. And then there's the broader fear that it's not just enough to elect Joe Biden. And there is a scepticism about democracy, about science, about what counts as knowledge, these deep currents are with us for a while. If we take the first first, when you look at Biden, so we talked last time, a week after Hillary Clinton had lost, and that was a choice between two visions of politics, but it was also in many obvious ways a real choice. This is a real choice too, but it is two men in their 70s, two white men in their 70s. When you look at Biden, what do you see when you think about hope and change? Do you see it? (laughs) What do you see when you see Joe Biden? (laughs) The first thing I see is that Biden could put an end to certain forms of damage. 
Whether he could repair that damage is another question. I mean, it will be a hopeful day if he wins. It's not a day of radical hope. It's not a day of radical transformation in itself. Much depends on the people he surrounds himself with and whether he truly, as he has suggested he will, brings in Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and other people who are to the left of him who will help restructure the economy, address the health care issues, restore democratic institutions, fund the postal system, for instance. Uh, I think a lot depends on who he's surrounded by and uh, what power they actually have. You know, Sartre once said something like, um, it's true that Paul Valéry is a bourgeois, but not every bourgeois is Paul Valéry. So it is true that both men are white men in their 70s. <laughs> that does not say that they can be reduced to that particular sociological concept. Not quite. And if he, as he almost seems certain he will, chooses a woman of colour as his running mate, does that go beyond symbolism? I mean, there is, of course, always the thought that, given his age, it's hard to imagine him running again. It may even be that a four-year term is a stretch. So there's a big political potential, political payoff there too. What does that mean for you as we wait for that choice? Well, on the one hand, of course, it is significant to have a woman of color as the vice president of the United States. That is a breakthrough. It has great symbolic meaning. I think that many people in the black community will be pleased by that representation. On the other hand, there are many people writing from within the black community who say, don't give us a prosecutor. <laughs> um, <laughs> Naming no names. <laughs> yeah, well, Kamala Harris, yeah. you know, was, of course, the district attorney of California, and she put many people away and represented the prison system and failed to reform it when asked to do so on a couple of key occasions. And that record will haunt her. And that also produces a kind of skepticism. I think that black politics, which is not just identity politics, the, the point is not just to see more black faces in the federal government or as in the highest offices, although that does matter. You know, there's no doubt that that matters. It's just not sufficient. So who will have the politics that actually addresses the issues of social inequality institutional violence, police violence, the prison system, I think we will see whether that manifests within the government or whether the left has to revamp itself to direct itself against a form of centrism that may well water down its more substantive proposals and demands. So one last question, and I suppose it's the big one, and it does touch on something that you addressed directly in 2016, in November 2016, you expressed your fears of the damage that a Trump presidency, this was just days after he won, would do to the foundations of democracy, the basic principles. And it's the thing that we don't know. So if he does lose this coming November, the thing that seems to me most unclear is how much lasting damage has been done. Because we've got nothing historically to compare this to, I think, not just the moment that we're in, but this kind of politics. And the optimistic view is that democracy is a resilient and flexible form of politics. And it's also something that you go through cycles. Things happen and then the counter-reaction happens too. And that's its point in a way. And the Trump presidency will produce a reaction. We're seeing it now. But there's also, I think, a deeper fear. You've touched on it. I think many of us have it. And I think I probably have it more now than I did four years ago, which is that something has changed um, and something over these last three and a half years. You can't just bounce back from this. This has left, and it's not just a stain, it's left a kind of permanent imprint on how people think about the institutions, the values and the norms. Yeah. I've actually moved more. I would say I'm more pessimistic now, even as it looks like Trump is going to lose, yeah. than I was back when his presidency started. How are you on that big question? Well, two things. I do fear that the debunking of democratic institutions, uh, the freedom of the press, the public funding of education, roads and libraries, uh, <laughs> participatory democracy, guaranteeing the right to vote, that the skepticism towards that, the ways in which it's all been called into question, 
has become normalized to some degree that people accept that everything is partisan, that, you know, if you're in favor of a public postal system, that means you must belong to the Democratic Party (laughs) rather than a common world. So I, I am afraid that the reduction of political life to uh, self-interested partisan action has been to some degree normalized and that it's kind of rare and beautiful when someone stands for democratic politics without immediately making that into a partisan position. I mean, democratic politics has to be a place where several partisan positions are at work. And if the word democracy or the fight for democracy is itself understood as fully saturated by a particular partisan position and the attack on it is another partisan position, then actually we're in trouble because there is no framework in which that antagonism can take place. I mean, one reason I don't particularly like the idea of resilience, a word that's become very popular in human rights, it's popular in humanitarian work, in funding organizations. It presumes that people bounce back, that institutions bounce back, but institutions can be broken and they can suffer irreparable damage and irreversible damage. And we have to actually look at that quite clearly because otherwise we, in some ways, accept that, oh, this is a bad moment, but there's some some dialectic at play and things will get better next time around. This is part of some some rhythm that happens in democratic life, but it's not really the destruction of democratic life. And that worries me because I think it can be broken. And if Trump is successful in his efforts at voter suppression and he claims that the results are false and that he's not leaving office until it's all clarified and he becomes involved in litigious efforts over four years, then he could remain in office unless the rest of the government is able to act and remove him, which we may well see. But he has no shame in appearing as a petty dictator and even maybe has some real pride in that, the fact that he can buck any institution, that he can defy its demands, that he is above it all. And so we do have reason to fear at this point. Just because he's appointed a number of Supreme Court justices doesn't mean that they will allow him to stay in power, but I think he's maybe wagering that they will, (laughs) at which point it's all rather wretched. And I don't think we can then call ourselves a democracy anymore, even though we will have a struggle for democracy in the population, but we will not be able to call ourselves a democracy. And if the day comes, which it may come quite soon, that he does lose, then he has to leave. And either the judges or the generals or just the people around him guide him out the door. There will be that enormous feeling of relief for many people all around the world. I mean, it's there will be a kind of outpouring of, of joy. But I think the danger is, as always with democracy, as always with elections, I mean, Obama's election was a case in point. There's the euphoria of the moment. But that's not the answer to the question. And the answer to the question of how much damage Donald Trump may have done to American democracy will not be answered on the day he leaves. That's true. I mean, if Biden, for instance, rejoins a number of international accords from which Trump withdrew, that will be a good sign. He will have to do a number of things very quickly to restore some faith in democracy. And of course, Biden is a centrist. He's also arguably a hawk of a certain kind. If Susan Rice is his vice president, we might see a a more aggressive foreign policy that won't be altogether helpful. Biden is very bad on Palestine. I'm afraid we will see the full sacrifice of Palestine under Biden administration. Many things I'm not convinced will be great under a Biden administration, but at least we'll be fighting those things, right? We won't be fearing for the end of democracy, we'll be fighting for for very specific forms of justice. But yes, there will be great joy, but it will not be the end of the story. It will be the beginning of a different struggle. As always, you can find links to some of the things that we discussed in our show notes and on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. Next week, among other things, we're going to be catching up with Lucia Rubinelli, who we've been speaking to at various points 
about lockdown in Italy. Initially, we were talking to her to try to find out how bad things were going to get here. But now Italy is playing a different role in the story of COVID. And we're going to be talking to Lucia about that. And we're going to be talking more widely about what's going on in European politics. Do please join us next week. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.